Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Underreported and underdiagnosed, sleep apnea is a common condition that prevents your body from getting enough oxygen. Sleep interrupted. Sleep apnea. Tonight on call with the Prairie Doc. Hello, I'm Dr. Deborah Johnston, tonight's Prairie Doc. Thank you for joining us this season as we continue to bring our viewers trusted health information. Tonight, we're discussing sleep apnea. Joining us here in the studio in Brookings is Renee Finney, an instructor of respiratory care from SDSU's Department of Allied and Population Health, and via Zoom, Dr. Michael Piedela from Yankton Medical Clinic. Welcome. I'm so excited you guys are here with us today. This is going to be really exciting and such an important topic. Renee, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah. Um, well, I started off as um, going to school for respiratory therapy. So I'm a registered respiratory therapist. Um, that's where I started. Um, and then um, continued um, through my career where I was introduced to um, sleep um, technology and sleep um, medicine. And so then I had um, received some additional education to be able to perform um, sleep studies, um, both inpatient or um, in facility and home sleep um, testing. Such a perfect fit for the topic for tonight. <laughs> Michael, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure, so I'm a pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine physician. Uh, went to SDSU and uh, studied chemistry and microbiology and then to USD for four years, then off to the Mayo Clinic for seven years where I studied pulmonary critical care and, and sleep medicine. And I've been in Yankton now at the Yankton Medical Clinic for 18 years. I work at a very sacred heart hospital. I'm a full professor at the University of South Dakota School of Medicine as well. Um, I work with respiratory therapists just like Renee. Um, we do home sleep tests, we do in-lab studies. Sleep apnea is a, a huge part of my practice, much more than I ever anticipated, and can make a huge difference in people's lives by diagnosing and treating um, sleep-related disorders, and especially sleep apnea. Yeah, so I'm really excited about the show, and I'm excited you both are here with us to delve into it and answer people's questions. But before we do that, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions about sleep apnea. We look forward to answering your questions. Viewers can contact us one of three ways. Call 1-888-376-6225, send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org, or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We'll work to answer as many of your questions as possible, given the time we have. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover, and we apologize if we don't get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of the program.
Your questions will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when we submit your questions. We're going to shake things up a little bit tonight um, because we're going to have a little roll-in that's going to describe a little bit more for those of you who aren't familiar with it what sleep apnea is. Getting us started on our topic, we sleep for roughly a third of our lives. Sleep is important as it rebuilds and refuels our body for the day ahead. And if sleep apnea is blocking the ability to get a good night's sleep, getting that looked at is crucial. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer takes us to Sioux Falls to discuss sleep apnea and how to look for it. Dr. Kenneth Scott is a doctor from Midwest ENT and Allergy who helps patients with sleep apnea and snoring. Snoring is when you relax and everything flops around and it makes the sound. And sleep apnea is when it flops around so much that it starts to affect your oxygen levels in a bad way. Dr. Scott says many of his patients who suffer from sleep apnea are overweight males, but he mentions anyone can have sleep apnea. Patients who have sleep apnea will be very fatigued throughout the day. People have usually been complaining about how loud their snoring is, and it usually isn't just their spouse, usually other family members if they go over for holidays or whatever give them a hard time. And although sleep apnea is most common in males, Dr. Scott says women don't have the same risks of sleep apnea until after menopause. All women actually are protected by their hormones until they go through menopause. Once they go through menopause, it almost peels that back and then the women go to the same rate as the guys. For patients who don't know they have sleep apnea, Dr. Scott says it could be very risky living life with it undiagnosed. He says new research is coming out saying sleep apnea could be more related to high blood pressure than people think. There is a study that suggested that undiagnosed and untreated obstructive sleep apnea is one of the more common reasons for hypertension if you can't find another medical reason for it. A CPAP machine or a dental appliance is usually recommended to fix sleep apnea, but there are surgical options. The most common one involves removing the patient's tonsils. Traditional sleep apnea surgeries is called an uvulopalatopharyngoplasty. It's a long word that basically is tonsils plus. We remove their tonsil tissue, we tighten up the tissues, sometimes we uh, put some uh, um, stabilizing for the base of their tongue so it doesn't fall back. Dr. Scott ends by saying if you or someone you know thinks you have sleep apnea, he says there's a good chance you could have it. They estimate that 5% of males probably have it in, in uh, the United States. That's a lot of people. And so if you think your spouse has it, they probably do have it, <laughs> you know, to some extent. Um, or if you are the person that's snoring and are being told by your bed partner that, you know, you should get checked out, you probably should. One in 20 chance is, um, is pretty significant for medical things. So Michael, if I'm the person who's being kept awake by the snoring all night or listening to someone and wondering, are you going to take that next breath, how do I bring that up to them? Any tips on uh, raising that topic? Well, I think, 
you know, helping them understand that it's not just that they're disrupting their partner's sleep, but that it could have serious health consequences for them. And, you know, there are multiple different ways to diagnose it now, including the convenience and ease of a home sleep test. And so the idea that they have to spend a night in the sleep lab is no longer the case. And so in that proper patient, which is most, who has disrupted sleep and symptoms of daytime sleepiness or other comorbid illnesses like Dr. Scott mentioned, hypertension, heart rhythm disturbances, other things, getting that diagnosed and then offering a treatment, which might include CPAP, might include some other options, can greatly not can greatly improve not only their quality of life and quality of sleep, but their their uh, risk for complications from other health problems. Renee, um, he talked a little bit about the home sleep study. Can you tell us about what that's like from the standpoint of the person having this study? Yeah. Um, so home sleep tests um, actually involve the patient. Um, having um, equipment that they would take home. Um, they're shown how to apply it and usually involves just a couple of belts around their chest and abdomen, um, a cannula that goes into their nose, and then a sensor on their finger. Um, and so they can be shown how to apply these devices to themselves um, before they go to bed. And so they just apply it um, before they go to bed in their own home. Um, wear it for the entire night, and then return it back for um, analysis. Okay. And Michael, what, um, what might mean that somebody should have an in-lab study instead of being able to sleep in their own bed? What kinds of things would you consider? Yeah, so home sleep testing is, is reserved for that patient who you have a degree of suspicion for straightforward obstructive sleep apnea, which again is the vast majority. That person who might be a little overweight, whose neck is large, who snores or who's witnessed to stop breathing. Um, if patients have other comorbidities like a history of stroke or heart failure or neurologic conditions like dementia or uh, muscle weakness, or if you're concerned about things like COPD or other respiratory illnesses, then those patients are best studied in the sleep lab itself. But again, <clears throat> the vast majority of patients are eligible for home sleep testing. And is the home test pretty reliable compared to an in-lab test? It is, if they understand how to do it properly and, and follow the guidance that's advised either by the person they're obtaining it from, or a lot of times they mail out the, the home sleep test device. It's been pretty well studied to be as accurate in that properly selected patient has being in the sleep lab. And of course, patients sleep better when they're in their own bed than they do in a sleep lab typically. And so, you know, if they're the right person, which is again, most of my patients, then a home sleep test tends to be the best option, at least initially. All right. And coverage insurance coverage is pretty good for the home tests? It is, yeah. Most of the time they actually will encourage you to do the home sleep test before referring somebody to the uh, sleep lab if you feel like they need to be in the sleep lab. Now we still have a, a large number of patients who are best studied in the sleep lab, so it's not appropriate to just assume that a home test is appropriate. Um, you know, it's best to talk with a sleep specialist about what's best for you. Okay. And Renee, what is an in-lab study like? 
Yes, yeah. So an in-facility sleep study would involve the patient um, coming to a facility, a hospital, um, in the evening of their study. Um, they're actually spending the night overnight in a sleep lab room. Um, those rooms are gonna look more similar to like a hotel room um, and a bedroom rather than a hospital bedroom. Um, but the technologist um, will prepare the patient um, you know, before they go to bed by applying several sensors and wires, belts. Um, very similar to the home testing, but we are able to monitor um, more things with the facility-based study. Um, so we actually can monitor EEG to tell us how deep of a sleep the patient is getting into. Um, and um, so we can kind of look at more parameters with that, um, that facility-based study. Um, also, if the patient in the early part of the night um, presents with um, a significant amount of obstructive sleep apnea, the technologist can come into the room and, and apply um, um, positive airway pressure um, and then continue to monitor the patient and adjust the pressure um, to attempt to eliminate the sleep apnea. Diagnostic and therapeutic in one fell swoop, I love it. <laughs> We've actually got a lot of questions already, which is just really exciting. So I'm just going to dive right in. Um, this person wants to know what are the signs and symptoms of sleep apnea? Michael? Well, they can be uh, vast. Um, and so people think of you know daytime sleepiness. Well, it doesn't have to be that. Disrupted sleep, number one. Insomnia is a common symptom for sleep apnea. Um, daytime fatigue, sleepiness poor mood, um, difficulty concentrating, problems with high blood pressure. There's all sorts of manifestations of sleep apnea across the board. And I've seen uh, almost anything, um, pain symptoms, that sort of thing. Um, when your sleep is poor, symptoms during the day are common. And so if you're at risk, as we've discussed earlier, if you're overweight, if your neck is large, if your tongue is large, if you're snoring or your spouse or significant other or anyone else, your kids, grandkids are noticing some <laughs> abnormal breathing, discuss that with your physician. Yeah. I like to remind my patients that we torture people by not letting them sleep. And it might not be somebody else waking you up. It might be you waking you up. So, um, Renee, this individual wants to know if you've gained a lot of weight since your sleep study and you were well, either you were or weren't diagnosed with sleep apnea at that time, should you be retested? Uh, you know, a significant amount of weight change can impact um, the results of the test, whether you have obstructive sleep apnea or not. Um, it usually requires, you know, quite a significant amount of, of weight change. Um, but we have had patients that um, maybe had a diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea from a sleep study um, they had lost a significant amount of weight and we had retested them just to um, see where they're at. If, they, if it's more um, in the mild form or if they, um, to what degree they still have obstructive sleep apnea. Michael, what else might change if somebody's weight changes significantly with their sleep apnea? So I agree with Renee, she's correct. I mean, if you have a considerable amount of weight loss, that does improve your symptoms as far as sleep apnea is concerned and it may reduce your severity. Um, one of the things that I see commonly is, you know, as we age, our muscles are not as toned. 
we tend to get heavier and and there are times when patients have a sleep study five ten years ago and then they come back with similar symptoms it's it's you know maybe borderline or normal and now they're having more symptoms and we restudy them and they now have sleep apnea and so if you do gain weight and as you age that increases your risk for sleep apnea you know dr scott talked about women reaching menopause age if they have a study before menopause and they're not diagnosed with sleep apnea now they reach menopause and things change it's worth restudying those patients so just because you had a normal sleep study or a sleep study that didn't reveal sleep apnea sometime in the past doesn't mean you wouldn't want to repeat that if you're having symptoms or have concerns for it and then there's also this situation where patients have tried CPAP in the past you know 10 15 years ago and and maybe it didn't go well but they're suffering from the symptoms and they say well I just can't use the CPAP well CPAP has evolved and it's more comfortable than it used to be and there are other new interfaces and uh, masks and things and so you know, those patients need to reconsider trying CPAP again as well. Okay. Um, we also have a question about non-apparatus sleep apnea control. Uh, I assume this is someone who's wondering about alternatives to the CPAP machine. Michael, I'm going to throw that one to you because I imagine you <laughs> deal with that a little bit more than Renee does. Yeah, so we get a lot of patients who come in asking about the hypoglossal nerve stimulator, which is known as the Inspire device. There's lots of commercials out there on radio and TV talking about if you don't tolerate a CPAP, which is key, number one, you don't, you cannot use a CPAP, and you have sleep apnea and you're suffering consequences of it, you know, this might be an option for you. They make it seem like it's the end all, cure all, be all. Um, it, it's not. CPAP is by far the most effective treatment and that should be the first line of treatment in, in virtually every patient unless there's some contraindication to it. But if you're a patient who absolutely just cannot tolerate CPAP, not because you don't like it, um, but because you just aren't able to use it, then there are some options out there. If you have mild to moderate disease, um, you can use an oral appliance designed by a dentist or sometimes obtained online um, again it's something you should discuss with your sleep medicine specialist and then if you're someone who has sleep apnea and fits the parameters for an inspire device which again relates to your apnea hypopnea index the number of times you're stopping breathing per hour your weight which is your body mass index your bmi and then you can't use a cpap in other words you've tried and you've simply failed if you're able to use cpap don't even consider it then you may be a candidate for this pacemaker that's put in that um, measures your respiratory efforts by monitoring your intercostal nerve which is a nerve that uh, is associated with breathing and then another one that goes to the base of your tongue your hypoglossal nerve and keeps your tongue stimulated so it stays out of the back of your airway um, then you may be a candidate for that but again that's not a first-line treatment it's not as effective as CPAP and it's something that should be reserved for a, a, a very specific subset of patients interesting yeah, I, I have a lot of people wonder about that, but my understanding is that your, your airway can be obstructed at multiple different levels, and that's really only useful if it's obstructed at the right level. Yeah, so what it comes down to, it's a lot of people have concentric airway obstruction, where their airway just kind of collapses all around. And the way the hypoglossal nerve stimulator works is at the base of your tongue, and it's your tongue falling back into your airway. And so if you meet those, those specific things, they have to put you to sleep in the 
surgery suite and look down in your throat, which is not impossible. I have several patients or dozens of patients that have done the evaluation and your tongue falls back, then Inspire might be right for you. But it's not like the commercials suggest. Um, and again, you, you have to be not overweight, um, or at least not significantly overweight, and then fall within a certain criteria of the times you stop breathing per hour um, to qualify. So speaking of uh, how many times you stop breathing per hour, what's too many? When well, I it's a great conversation to have. Apnea hypopnea index is something that we use to help stage people's um, sleep apnea, but it doesn't necessarily predict severity of disease. What we consider normal is five times or less per hour. What we consider abnormal is five to 15 has a mild component of sleep apnea, 15 to 30 times for, per hour has moderate and greater than 30 severe. But there isn't necessarily a correlation between the elevation in your apnea hypopnea index and the severity of your symptoms or the consequences of your sleep apnea. So I never, I never wanna tell patients that they have severe or moderate or mild disease based on just their apnea hypopnea index. They, that might be mildly, moderately, or severely elevated but their symptoms can vary across the board. So it's a conversation to have with your sleep doc about you know, what the impacts of your sleep apnea are regardless of that apnea hypopnea index. Renee, what is an apnea hypopnea index? Yeah, it, it stands for, um, it's AHI, and it's a number um, that we're able to um, calculate from um, both home sleep testing and facility-based testing, but it basically is the number of um, obstructive events, whether they be in apnea or hypopnea. And, and what does that mean yeah. for our audience? Yeah. What is apnea and what is hypopnea? Yeah, so apnea is when there is a um, almost a complete cessation of airflow um, for 10 seconds or greater. Um, a hypopnea is when there's a reduction in airflow um, for 10 seconds or greater that causes an arousal in sleep. Um, okay. And the hypopnea also um, has a component of it that it causes uh, desaturation or a, a dip in oxygen, oxygen level. levels. Okay. Yep. So that number, that AHI, is like an average over the course of the night. Of the night. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, we have a question here wondering if waking with a dry mouth could indicate sleep apnea. Michael? Yeah, it certainly could. So um, if you look at the anatomy of the airway, the way that our upper airway is structured, breathing through our nose is a better avenue to get air down into our upper airway, which is again where the problem with sleep apnea is. It's not really a problem with your lungs or the way that you exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide. It's with how you get air into your lungs. And so if you breathe through your mouth, and you snore, you're gonna irritate that upper airway and that's gonna cause you to have you know, potentially a, a swollen uvula, that's that little thing that hangs down in the back of your throat and a sore throat. And so it could be, absolutely could be, an indication of some abnormal breathing during sleep. And so that's something to get, again, discuss with your regular physician and inquire about whether or not you know, having a sleep study or seeing a sleep specialist might be helpful. We have another individual who's wondering if it still matters if your sleep apnea symptoms are just after you're drinking. So if you've been drinking alcohol and, and that's the only time you snore, Renee, is that still a problem? You know, I, I actually get asked that and other questions related to um, 
you know, certain conditions that might worsen apnea. Um, often patients will say, well, I only have apnea when I lay on my back. I'm sure of that. I don't think that's a problem. I'll just make sure to lay on my side. And so I always remind them if, if, if they are having apnea um, when they're laying on their back or when they're ha drinking alcohol, um, chances are very good chance that they're also having apnea and other conditions. Um, many times people don't even know that they're having obstructive sleep apnea during their sleep. They're asleep while it's happening. Um, so they're often very surprised at the number of times that they're having the apnea. Excellent. Here's someone who, um, I think this is a really good question that comes up for me in the office a lot. Is there a way to demonstrate the benefits of using that CPAP regularly even if the person doesn't notice an improvement in their day-to-day -day energy levels. Michael? Yeah, absolutely. So that's not an uncommon um, situation where a patient, excuse me, is clearly diagnosed with sleep apnea. They have some daytime symptoms and some poor sleep and we start them on CPAP, BiPAP, APAP, whatever we choose. And they don't necessarily notice an improvement in their overall sense of alertness or awakeness or that they sleep better. We still know based on lots of retrospective data, in other words, look, looking back at thousands of patients who are on CPAP, that we, we reduce the risk for complications unrelated to their daytime sleepiness or their nighttime sleep, like high blood pressure, like heart rhythm disturbances, atrial fibrillation, memory problems, cognitive issues, that sort of thing still improves even if you aren't certain that CPAP is making a difference to your quality of sleep. So the fact that you don't necessarily notice a dramatic improvement in your daytime symptoms of fatigue or your quality of sleep doesn't mean that CPAP still isn't very helpful for you. It's kind of like taking a medicine for blood pressure. You don't necessarily notice you feel different. In fact, most of the time you don't, but you're preventing the complications of that condition. That's such an important concept. I think if there's one thing people bring home from this conversation, okay, get tested, and also uh, it's still helping even if you don't notice the improvement. So, Sleep disorders make getting a good night's rest tough. Using oral appliances can make that easier by helping to open a patient's airway and allowing them to breathe in more oxygen. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer spoke with a dentist about appliances that help keep the airway open so you can get a good night's rest. Dr. Christopher Hart from Hart Dental and Mitchell helps patients with finding the right oral appliances to help combat sleep disorders. For an oral appliance, it's primarily lifting the jaw, stabilizing the jaw, uh, lifting it forward to uh, remove the obstruction, which is primarily the ba either the base of the tongue, or it could be excess tissue for, like from the soft palate. Dr. Hart says when people who need oral appliances sleep, their jaw drops back, which can obstruct the airway, creating a snoring sound. An appliance is used to fix that problem. What an oral appliance does then is it basically brings that jaw forward. So instead of being back like this, collapsing the airway, it brings it forward. And then, you know, you can mimic it again by just pushing your jaw forward, take a deep breath, and all of a sudden you can get a much larger volume of air. He does bring up that there are certain aspects of oral appliances to watch out for, like making sure the appliance fits and doesn't shift the teeth, not shifting the jaw forward too much, and understanding if the appliance is working. It's very important 
that uh, you know if the treatment's working sufficiently or if you need to refer. Just like uh, we need to know if CPAP, if it's not working or not being utilized, you know, maybe a surgical consult's needed. Heart Dental does not make oral appliances, but they digitally scan the mouth to get measurements that are then sent off to create oral appliances. We send that and then we have it digitally designed. All of our appliances are either milled, like C it's like CNC machining, uh, milled out of solid acrylic or they're printed um, from nylon. Dr. Hart has seen every type of patient with sleep apnea and says stereotyping the old overweight male harms the patients that don't fit the criteria. Preventing sleep apnea is what he loves to do, and he says that has saved a couple marriages. I love having patients come back. They say, I use my oral appliance all the time. My, my wife is now sleeping better. Uh, statistics show that the spouse will generally live 10 years longer uh, if they're sleeping with a sleep apnea patient that's treated versus untreated. Dr. Hart shares that he suffered from sleep disorders during his college days, and he says he should have treated it sooner. Now, he can't live without it. I used to take naps in my car at lunch in, in college. In between classes, uh, I would sleep a couple hours every Saturday and Sunday. I really missed out on my kid's life in many ways. I used to need, I used to need at least an hour and a half more of sleep every night. Once I treated my sleep disorder, no more naps, and uh, I sleep less, and I feel better than ever. I think that's a great reminder. We talk a lot about the overweight male, um, but we even had a, an observation from a viewer that they have three highly fit friends with sleep apnea. Uh, and now we've got some more discussion about how it's not just those overweight individuals and older individuals who can have sleep apnea. So uh, that's very true. And any of those previous symptoms that uh, Michael was talking about and that we've been talking about. If you're worried, let's get it checked out. So uh, we have a couple of questions here about the differences between the different types of respiratory support machines that uh, people might use at home, uh, the CPAP, the ASV, and the BiPAP machines. Renee, you want to tackle that one, how they're different? We've got tons of questions. So guys, this is going to be lightning round. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, a CPAP stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure. And basically that's um, just one pressure that is being um, delivered to the airway to act as a pneumatic splint and keep Hold it, it open. open. Yes. Sometimes patients, um, we've found that they've um, used as much CPAP pressure as we can give them. Um, or if they don't tolerate CPAP, that one continuous pressure, um, we might try bi-level, which is basically two pressures. So we have a higher pressure that's delivered when the patient takes a breath in, and then when they go to exhale, that pressure backs down into a, a lower pressure. So we might use bi-level for patients that um, have more severe obstructive sleep apnea, or if they're not tolerating that CPAP, that continuous CPAP pressure. Um, so an option for those that otherwise might think they need that surgery, maybe you can do the BiPAP. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. how about the ASV? 
Yeah, so ASV is, is how I like to describe it, is a sophisticated bi-level. Um, and basically it provides a little bit more support for those um, patients that might be a little bit more complex. Okay, excellent. Um, Michael, this uh, individual says, uh, can you be cured from your sleep apnea and get rid of the need for the mask and anything else? Is that something people can think might happen? Oh, we don't seem to have any sound here for Dr. Pietala. How about now? You ah, got me? perfect, now we got gotcha. you. Good, yeah, Zoom. Um, so, yeah, in patients whose sleep apnea is a consequence of their weight gain, um, you know, age is a risk factor as well. You can't get any younger, and, and the goal is to get older. But if your sleep apnea is a consequence of having gained weight, or maybe a medicine you're on that suppresses your muscle strength or, or respiratory effort, then potentially that could be the case. But in most instances, once you're diagnosed with sleep apnea, you're likely to need treatment for the, the rest of your life. And so I tell patients just to be prepared for that. And if things change, then what we do is, as Renee mentioned earlier, is either just have them go off their CPAP and see how they do. Sometimes we restudy them, sometimes we don't have to do that. But I tell patients in most instances, if they're gonna start CPAP, they're probably gonna be on it indefinitely. And that's not because you started the CPAP that's because your disease is something that's going to be with you so yeah so there there tends to be sometimes this misunderstanding or myth that because i start cpap i'm now addicted or hooked on cpap or oxygen and that's absolutely not true at all it's the it's the right treatment and treating it helps prevent prevent the need for additional treatment or other complications and so a patient should be encouraged not to believe that using their device is a negative thing yeah, that's how we that's how we fix the problem. So that's important to remember. Um, and here we have a caller. I'm very proud of, of a couple of individuals here uh, who apparently have CPAP, BiPAP, uh, and one individual is worrying about what she should do in the case of a power outage, and another person is worried because they're going to go camping, backpacking in the wilderness, and worried about not being able to have their CPAP available. Yeah, I, I know that um, I would encourage that those patients to um, work with their home medical equipment provider. Um, we do have situations where patients might be away from electricity or maybe they're a trucker or for whatever reason um, they have something, um, some situation where they want to use their CPAP but they need to be supported with a power source. And so there are options available um, through their home medical equipment provider. Okay, so neither of these individuals need to think that they're just out of luck. And some of those travel C CPAPs are very small and very light. Yes. So they wouldn't add much to a backpacking trip. Correct, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, Michael, here's somebody who's wondering about a relationship between sleep apnea and dementia. Yeah, so that's a pretty complex interaction. Um, Patients who have Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or, or certain other forms of dementia can have more complex uh, sleep-related breathing abnormalities. You know, if they have other comorbidities like obesity or hypertension or those sorts of things, certainly obstructive sleep apnea is part of it, but 
In addition to sleep apnea, patients with dementia are at increased risk for other things like REM sleep behavior disorder, complex sleep apnea, which is a central and obstructive feature, or central alone, where your brain just kind of forgets to tell you to breathe. And so if you're a patient who suffers from memory problems, dementia, um, some other comorbid illnesses, then an in-lab study is better because that can differentiate between obstructive sleep apnea, central sleep apnea, or a combination of both, which we call complex apnea. So the biggest thing is there are sleep-related breathing abnormalities associated with dementia. If you have some memory problems, concern for dementia, doing a study in the lab is better than doing one at home. And we've actually got some questions here about central sleep apnea, and you've, you've kind of answered some of those, but one of the questions is, how do you treat central sleep apnea? We've talked about the CPAP providing that support, but if the problem is my brain not telling me to sleep, what are my options there, Michael? Yeah, well, that's a little, that's a big, another really uh, great question. A lot of debate that we could discuss regarding that. Um, and so central sleep apnea, our brain stem is what sort of tells us how to breathe based on our oxygen levels and carbon dioxide levels. And when something affects our brain, whether it's dementia or a stroke or heart failure, that can be altered. And the consequence of that is not obstructive phenomenon. It's not that your upper airway is obstructing, but that your brain is sort of forgetting to tell you to breathe. And uh, BiPAP and ASV, servo ventilation, which are big terms to say, a machine that keeps you breathing by giving you breaths when it should, would hopefully be a solution in that situation. And sometimes it is. Um, most importantly, it's about managing the underlying illness if you can. So if someone with heart failure has a lot of central sleep apnea, manage their heart failure appropriately. If it's a stroke patient, prevent future strokes. Um, but they often, the biggest key is if you have those other comorbid illnesses, those other conditions, then you're not really a candidate for home sleep testing and you're someone who if you try a CPAP and it's not successful, we need to get you in the lab and do a titration and see if BiPAP with a backup rate, ASV, which is something Renee touched on, or servoventilation uh, of a different mode is appropriate for you. So there are some options, but it's a lot more complicated. It's so, much more complicated, and you absolutely have to see a sleep specialist if that's the question. Yeah. Um, here we have a couple of kind of related questions. Um, somebody wanting to know, how often do I need to repeat my sleep study? If I've been diagnosed, I'm using my CPAP, I'm feeling okay, do I need another sleep study, Renee? Yeah, I mean, I think if patients are, you know, compliant with their CPAP, they're feeling well, um, there's no indication that things have changed for them, they don't necessarily have to have another sleep study done just because. Okay. Um, however, if they're noticing that symptoms are starting to slowly kind of creep in again, um, and they, they're still, despite wearing their CPAP, um, that might be a time for them to talk to their doctor about potentially needing to take a look at things again. And how often should I replace my CPAP machine? Not the tubing, not the mask, but the machine itself. How often does that need to be re replaced, Renee? Well, I think if patients are noticing that um, they're concerned that it's not giving them as much pressure as it has in the past or if they are concerned that they're having some symptoms return um, their first stop might be to go to home medical equipment have them um, check to make sure the pressure is outputting what 
it needs to or what it has, mm -hmm. is prescribed to to do. If it isn't, then it's time to have the machine replaced. So they can wear out. Mm -hmm. Michael, yeah. we have a, a question here. Somebody um, wondering about patients with sleep with Down syndrome and sleep apnea. Is that a common situation and are there uh, differences in the way these individuals present or what we need to do to treat or test them? So that's a great question. Yeah, Down syndrome patients just based upon their airway anatomy all have sleep apnea essentially. And um, so if you do have a family member, uh, a patient, if you're a doc who has Down syndrome, getting him in for a sleep study sooner than later is a great idea um, because we can greatly improve not only their quality of life, but their life expectancy. You know, if you look at Down syndrome, as you understand, these uh, patients now live for almost normal lives if we can get on top of things like their sleep apnea. And so I have a bunch of Down syndrome patients who are on CPAP and BiPAP and and so the sooner you can get them evaluated, especially you know once they've developed any sign or of symptoms, the better. So yeah, I, I encourage all my Down syndrome patients to have a sleep study. Perfect. Um, we have another individual wondering if there's a genetic component to sleep apnea. They say that uh, it seems to run in their family and in men and women both. Michael? <laughs> so there is no specific gene. Um, that is associated with sleep apnea. But if you look at the risk factors for sleep apnea, it's how big a person you are, how large your neck is, you know, what, what other factors contribute, um, how your mandible is shaped. And that, of course, is all inheritable. And so we do often see associations or correlations with families, but there's not a gene specifically associated. So it's more to do with, you know, what's your BMI, what's your neck size, what's your mandibular AP diameter like. And so that tends to be inheritable. So there's, it's not truly a genetic disease, but if there are family members who have sleep apnea, you're likely to be more or more prone, prone to suffer from it as well. It's a multifactorial disease. Um, Renee, someone wants to know if the water in their CPAP has to be heated. It, it doesn't have to be heated um, if they prefer it to be cool. Um, heating it will actually provide more moisture content in the air, so there's less likelihood of them um, getting dry when they're using their device. So they um, don't even need to use the water at all if they don't care to if if they don't care to they they don't have to um, that we have found better compliance when um, a heated humidification or any humidification is used um, less drying means less um, oral venting where the mouth will pop open and then the air just kind of comes, comes out of out. the mouth because the mouth gets dry from the air. So we do find better compliance with humidification. And that actually relates to another question about those travel CPAPs that might not have a water chamber if they're still effective. And I'm hearing you say, yeah, mm -hmm. they just may not be as comfortable and may be a little more prone to trouble. So yeah, the travel ones are a good option, even though they don't have the humidification. Patient. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, we have someone, and we're almost down to the last seconds here, uh, wanting to know if there's a certain sleeping position that avoids issues with sleep apnea. Dr. Plata? Yeah, so avoidance of supine sleep can be, oops. 
It's yeah, I am on it. Yeah, avoiding the supine sleep is very helpful. Um, supine sleep position, again, allows your tongue to fall back in your airway. And so if you can stay off your back, that can be very helpful. And there are certain patients who have only supine sleep position-related sleep apnea who, if we can find ways for them to strictly avoid being on their back, whether it's tennis balls in the back of their sleep shirt or body pillows, um, that might be an option. But what I would say is, number one, try a CPAP. The, the thing works fantastically in the vast majority of patients. And if you've heard bad things, that's not true. It's usually very effective. And so don't be afraid to get the study done, get your sleep apnea treated, feel much more better, and just have to put a mask on each night. And once you get used to that, and, and someone like Renee can be incredibly helpful at finding the right mask for you and helping you learn how to use that CPAP. Yeah. And this hour has gone so fast. The winner of our prize tonight is Carrie from Pier. Thank you, Carrie, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of this wonderful show. A gift will be sent to you. And we'll be back after this. On Call with the Prairie Doc has been a leading source of health education for 21 seasons. Join us as we continue to provide health information based on science built on trust. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to access the entire Prairie Doc library today. My family has a fondness for crime dramas and thrillers. It isn't uncommon to watch a scene in which a peacefully sleeping individual wakes when a shadowy figure approaches their bedside with a pillow. Predictably, the assailant calmly presses that pillow over the face of their victim and waits until the struggling stops. For millions of us, the threat in our bedrooms isn't some malevolent other, but rather our own bodies and brains. We may get our next breath, but for those with sleep apnea, it can be a struggle. Sleep apnea has two basic types. In the most common, obstructive sleep apnea, the relaxation of sleep causes some part of the airway to essentially collapse, blocking off airflow. Those afflicted may come to medical attention because their partners complain about their snoring and about having to nudge them to prompt that next breath. Their brains have to wake up enough to restore that muscle tone and open the airway. This allows them to breathe. This happens repeatedly throughout the night, multiple times an hour. In central sleep apnea, there are problems with the brain sending the instruction to breathe. Some people experience episodes related to both types of apnea, especially as they adjust to treatment for their obstructive sleep apnea, and some people have other types of sleep-disordered breathing. Sleep apnea is a serious condition. It is linked to many other health problems, among them high blood pressure, diabetes, coronary artery disease, heart rhythm abnormalities, heart failure, strokes, depression, and dementia. Even when statistically subtracting out the risk factors that may be common to both sleep apnea and these other conditions, the relationship remains. Of course, there is the obvious risk of accidents caused by dozing off behind the wheel or in other perilous situations. 
Then there is the less quantifiable cost of couples who want to share a bedroom but don't because the snoring of one partner or anxiety about that next breath means neither really sleep. The first step to diagnosing sleep apnea is to visit with your primary care provider. They can determine if you qualify for a home sleep study or if you might be better off having a test done in a sleep lab where more monitoring is possible and more complex problems can be detected. Once the diagnosis is confirmed, treatment options can be explored. Most people receive some form of breathing support overnight. This is usually considered the gold standard and is suitable for all forms of sleep apnea. Many of my patients are surprised at just how easily they adjust to using it and tell me that their partners often will wake them up to put it on if they doze off without it. Many of those who initially struggle with their CPAP can overcome the problems with a dose of determination and the help of a talented sleep therapist. For some people, dental appliances and various surgical procedures are possibilities. I like to remind my patients that sleep deprivation is considered to be a form of torture. Don't let it be part of your bedtime routine. Thank you to our guests, Renee Finney and Dr. Michael Padilla, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about sleep apnea. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and online, and listen to us live most Wednesday mornings at 9.30 on KBRK in Brookings. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever podcasts can be found. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thank you for joining us for another episode of health information based on science and built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Addiction is a medical condition. Treatment can help. Recovery is possible. Addiction and recovery, next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. Hi, I'm Joni Holm. I'm the, on the board of directors of Healing Words. Well, there's so much to learn about our bodies. We take care of our cars in certain ways. We take care of uh, our houses and our lawns, but do we take care of ourselves? So by watching and learning, there's just so much to gain. I can think of so many examples with our guests talking about you know, how many times your heart beats a day and that if you don't take care of it, that, that machine is damaged. And certainly our skin, we don't take care of our skin. So it's an education for everybody and there's so much to learn about our bodies. There's so much misinformation out there and there's so much advertising involved with medicine that it's hard to decipher what's true and what's not. 
and Rick believed in providing education without any bias. So he wanted the public to see the truth and be able to decipher on their own what was good for them and what wasn't. An example of that is when a neighbor needed some information about uh, care for her father and not only Prairie Doc provides some background information, but it happened to be the physician her father was going to see. So she learned about the illness, she learned about the physician by seeing him in our archives. Prairie Doc is a nonprofit our four prairie docs and our guest physicians all volunteer their time. People might think, well, why do I need to donate if it's a volunteer project? Well, there's a lot behind the scene. We've got the studio, we've got the time, we've got the cameras and the lights and the students that are involved in the production. It takes many, many hours for every show and that's what your dollars as you donate go to. So we, we really need the support and we appreciate the support. For more information, go online, www.prairiedoc.org. And to donate, you can mail a check to our post office box at 752 Brookings, South Dakota, 57006, or you can go online. And there's on the top line, there's a little donate button. And we really would appreciate your donations because we couldn't do this, A, if you weren't watching and enjoying it, but B, if we didn't have the donations for the ongoing cost. Thank you for your support. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by out here, the day starts early and ends late. You don't love this land because it's easy. You love it because it's home. At Avera, we're built for rural healthcare. We're bringing quality, innovation, and advanced technology to your vibrant communities. Care when and where you need it. That's how Avera moves health forward. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Ophthalmology Limited, Avera Medical Group Brookings, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Monument Health, Dakota Dermatology, Vance Thompson Vision, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, South Dakota American College of Physicians, Cool Beans Coffee, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, and Swiftel Communications. Thank you.